Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have again this evening to meet in this manner. And we are always really uh, thrilled to have the chance to cast our minds back over the course of the years and to be able to recognize that through all the ups and downs and through the thick and thin of church history, uh, often thicker rather than thinner in some respects, uh, you have been at work in, in very wonderful ways so that we're, we're able to trace over and over again how you order all things well and combine all circumstances in a way that furthers your purpose, glorifies your son and secures the truest good for your people. Uh, how marvel we are living God at your wise, that he may know your help as he leads us through this next uh, chapter in the story with all that uh, it has to teach us, all that it has to inspire us. And we'd ask that he himself would be refreshed on the back of what uh, has been a, a demanding few days for him. We pray that uh, he may know the help of your Holy Spirit again this evening, that you'd give him freshness in his thinking, clarity in his speaking, and that he may indeed be used by you to expand again our perspective and enable us together to rejoice in the glory that is yours as our God and Saviour, the Lord of all history. Grant us then your blessing and your help together now as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And over to you, Jeremy. Many thanks. Thank you, Jerry, again. Yes, welcome, everybody. Thank you for uh, hanging in there with this course. Um, always when there's a break of a week, you wonder if anybody's going to remember to return again, but it's lovely to see so many screens active and hope you're following this as best you can anyway. Sorry that it's always 100 miles an hour, but as you could imagine, 2,000 years of church history um, takes some getting through. Which is all about the age of reason and revival. Um, one note to add from last week that I didn't really mention was very important. Remember, we, we closed last week with uh, Puritanism and we were thinking about Oliver Cromwell and the Commonwealth that he set up and so on. Um, what we didn't mention at that time was um, there were a lot of Puritans who were unhappy with the Church of England and uh, with the fact that the Church of England was government controlled and uh, these Puritans were real evangelicals, real back to the Bible people. And they were persecuted, and a fair number of them then famously left the shores of England in 1620 on a ship called the Mayflower. And uh, you'll probably know the story how they ended up on the east coast of the United States, um, Boston. In fact, if you go to Boston today, you can do a, a little trip around, a little historical tour around famous landmarks of the landing of the Pilgrim Fathers um, and the Mayflower. And of course, that's changed and shaped the whole history of the United States. And uh, it's incredible to think, actually, that um, a superpower like the USA has had such major Christian influence. And uh, while the USA can be critiqued for a lot of things, this has been a blessing, way more of a blessing um, to the evangelical world than anything else. And of course, these Puritans came with strong biblical values. They proposed freedom of religion, lots of denominations, free to worship in the Americas. And of course, you can still see on the on the $10 bills, in God we trust. And um, when a president is inaugurated, there will be a, an evangelical leader often to pray formally for the president as evangelical values have been very much at the heart 
of the American Constitution. And we need to keep praying for that as liberalism starts to move in more and more to America. Obviously, we're further on here in Europe, further down the track of liberalism. There's still a lot of um, evangelicals, active churches, huge churches in America with this these Puritan values in their background. But of course, they are just as worried as we are that those values are being eroded. So we need to pray for America. Um, as so much of the resource of uh, mission and uh, Christianity across the world emanates from America. So um, it's a little bit about that history. There's a lot more to say, obviously, about American church history. I did a whole course of that, actually, because my Bible college was in America, and there's some fascinating heroes there. I'm going to mention just one of them tonight, actually, as we go into the age of reason and revival. But basically, um, a sea change starts to take shape. Um, we've put the date 1648, 1650 here. Um, basically following uh, the Protestant Reformation. And then there was a Catholic counter-reformation, which we can't go into, but of course there were, there were fights between Protestants and Catholics for, for decades, for centuries, none of which was particularly honouring to the gospel until they finally found some kind of way to, to live at peace with each other. But those tensions are obviously still around today. But because of these religious wars, there was a real growing tiredness about religion in general. You know, as people saw Catholics and Protestants fighting with each other, they wondered, what is the point of religion? And at the same time, there was a, a real intellectual movement, which we call the Enlightenment, which really promoted the idea basically the idea behind in the enlightenment there it's, it's a wide wide ranging movement that you can't pin down to one line but how it affected the church in particular was that dogmas that the church had presented for generations which had just previously been accepted by people without much questioning those dogmas started to be questioned and uh, people started to say well look every man can use his own reason for himself we don't want we don't behave so badly they're fighting each other um and of course some of the critiques that modern day atheists would make about um the the bad news that religion has been over the last thousand plus years with wars and, and fights and crusades and all of that kind of thing we've got to put our hands up and say that's absolutely true how many of those people who call themselves Christians were genuine Holy Spirit born again Christians um, is another matter. But certainly the church, official church, has, has done a lot of bad as well as good. And we need to own up to that. And so the tiredness of that uh, led to this intellectual development called the Enlightenment, um, which meant that, you know, people were being told, think for yourself. Don't just be gullible. Don't just buy in everything your priest tells you, everything your bishop tells you. Um, some of this was good, of course, because some of this was part of the story of the Reformation. Um, the reformers were saying, look, don't just go to church naively, sitting, listening to this mass in Latin that you can't understand, taking in your religious ritual and then going home again without really thinking about it. People like Wycliffe and Luther were putting the Bible in individual people's hands now, and ordinary men and women were able to read scripture for themselves, to think for themselves. And of course, as they read the real raw details of scripture uh, and Christ and salvation, they started to compare that with some of the dogma of the church that didn't quite fit in with what the Bible was teaching. So there was revolution about in all kinds of ways. In, in some senses, people were getting back to the Bible and the individual people were building on their personal relationship with God, all of which was wonderful and good. But there was a whole other strand to the Enlightenment that led to what we might call atheism today, kind of the, the seedbed of atheism um, began around the time of the Enlightenment. Of course, there have always been atheists, but 
um, as Richard Dawkins would call them, intellectually satisfied, intellectually fulfilled atheism. The seedbed of that really came during this time of the Enlightenment. And I've, I've mentioned here, especially in France, France was kind of um, the beginning of this. And we'll talk about the French Revolution and how that changed the world a little bit later. But uh, especially in France, there were lots of people saying we need to get rid of all supernatural superstition. So people began to doubt the miracles of the Bible, began to doubt how the Bible was put together and so on. It wasn't just accepted anymore as a standard authority that nobody questioned. Just as you questioned the church, you questioned the Bible, and you questioned the miraculous because people didn't see a lot of miracles um, in everyday life. So they questioned you know, these people from the past, they were lost in their superstitions, they made up these miracle stories, but now that we're more educated, now that we're more aware of how the world works, now that science is becoming more and more important, and this, of course, the history of science fits right in with this, then science, with some people, science was taking God a little bit more out of the equation, and you either believe in science or you believe in miracles. Now, of course, we don't need that dichotomy today. You can believe in science and in miracles. In fact, science is a study of the miraculous in that sense as well, how God put the universe together. But you can understand, you can see how this personal enlightenment, this trust in human reason, hum humans being asked to question the Bible, question church authority in every way, was leading to, um, to atheism, to secular thinking. Um, and and you know, there were two forms of thought, in a sense, emphasized by Erasmus and Luther. This is going back to Reformation days, but the, the seed was planted by the battle between Luther and Erasmus. Luther had said, of course, that and mankind needs to wait for a revelation from God to open his eyes to his lost spiritual state and then find Jesus Christ. So that was that was Luther's point. There was the, the human will was in bondage. Whereas Erasmus, who would have claimed to be a Christian, of course, Erasmus said, no, man is not bound in sin. Man is free. He's free to do good if he wants to do good. And here then, from Erasmus onwards, came this whole idea that, you know, if human beings were only educated, if human beings were only taught to live rationally, then humanity under its own steam could reach some form of utopia. So, this is the seedbed of this kind of thinking, which would eventually be called humanism. And humanism is very developed in our day. But in a sense, we don't need God to be good. You might have heard other atheists saying that kind of thing. Man can, can use his own reason. We don't need the Bible text to tell us how to live. And we don't like the authority. We don't like how it tells us how to live. I want my own freedom. So the idea of human freedom becomes a huge issue in these days. Now, of course, Christians in the middle of this, intelligent Christians were putting... We're not putting setting reason against revelation, but both are very important. We need to use reason, often reasoned arguments, in presenting Christ to other people. Um, Christianity is logical, but it's also beyond logic, and we have to hold these two things in tension. You can give a logical defense for the Christian faith, and yet no one can become a Christian without the supernatural intervention of God, supernatural revelation. Remember Paul saying, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. So Paul was setting off in his life, um, thinking that he was doing good by killing Christians and so on. What changed his life around was not him methodically working out how to be a Christian, but God intervening, the, the, the light on the road to Damascus. That's a, a beautiful picture of the revelation of God lighting up our lives. So it's not that Christians should be against reason. 
but they shouldn't concentrate solely on reason, but also on revelation. We must defend the idea of revelation. But of course, often when you're talking to people who have no idea of what revelation means, they've never experienced it. Sometimes you wonder as a Christian, you know, I, I remember my conversion story and how God intervened in my life. But it's difficult to explain that to someone who has no category for that. What does conversion look like? What does it mean for God to open your eyes? So you can understand people just focusing on human reason and needing to be convinced about revelation. And of course, we can never take a person to Christianity purely through logical thought. We must pray and ask God to open their eyes. There, there's never a time when we say, I'm trusting even in this great evangelistic course, which lays out the gospel superbly, as things like Alpha and Christianity Explorer do. We can't just rely on setting out the, the logical arguments of Christianity. We need to pray for that touch of God. Um, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound and sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. You can never have a full orbed Christianity without revelation, God opening people's eyes. So Christians were wrestling with reason and revelation. Um, you can reason towards God by looking at the universe. And of course, as science was developing, science was pointing out new wonders of the universe. And a Christian would look at the world, the universe, and say, actually, there's no clash between the progress of science, looking at the wonders of the universe, because science just uncovers more and more wonders. And I can fit God into those wonders in every way. So a Christian can look at creation, the created world, and deduce from there that there is some higher power. But you need more than that. You can't just look at the universe and discern what kind of God this is. And you certainly cannot discern the story of the atonement from just looking at the universe. You need personal revelation to believe that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So here's this tension that we go on facing between reason and revelation. Now, during this period of time, um, a belief called deism becomes widely held. The idea of deism was that there is a God who created all things, but he kind of set everything up as this giant smooth running mechanism and then he let it go. And, and God does not intervene in human life at all. He just sets the universe running and then leaves us to it. That's the belief in deism. Now, you then would ask, well, why would a God want to do that? Why would God want to go to all the trouble of creating a universe like ours, creating human beings who who value deep interpersonal relationships, but the God, this God himself who creates us doesn't want relationship himself. Why does he go to the bother of doing that? You may ask that. But it was also a very neat and tidy belief for people who didn't want to deal with a personal God, who didn't want to deal with issues of salvation. Yes, if you looked at the universe, you could not deny that there was a higher power behind it, but I don't need that higher power to mess with my life. You can, you can see the attraction of that belief, couldn't you? So deism, God set the universe up as this giant machine, but doesn't get involved in any way. It's interesting that uh, when you look at this, this term, athe true atheists, um, even Richard Dawkins, who is seen as kind of the, the high priest of atheism, he, he didn't, wouldn't actually call himself an atheist. He would call himself an agnostic. Uh, you know, I don't know. I have no way of judging whether there's a God or not. Of course, all of his arguments sound and feel and smell atheistic, but he himself would call, call himself an agnostic. Um, there is so much in this universe that points to some higher power. And people like this happy medium, this middle ground of, I'll believe in the higher power. That's great. Just so long as he doesn't interfere with my life and what I want to do. I think there are a lot of people in Britain today that are like that as well. I think there aren't very many true atheists in Britain today. I think there are a lot of people that believe that there's something out there, someone out there, um, but they're not prepared to specify who that is. They like to leave it a mystery. 
because the closer and more defined God gets, as in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins, therefore we are sinners. We are heading to hell and judgment and we need to trust in Christ and have our life totally taken up with Christ. Um, if you want to set aside that challenge, that's great. Deism allows you to do that. A very key book, um, which came out in 1802, called Natural Theology. And basically, um, this book opens with William Paley saying, you know, if you were walking along a heath in a, a countryside and you came across a watch and you picked up a watch and you looked at it and you thought, boy, this is complex. Look at these mechanisms that put together this watch. Um, it's impossible to believe that this watch arose from nothing, that this watch is some kind of accident. You can see clearly that it's been put together. It ticks. It's orderly. It's logical. It follows a sequence. It follows laws. And so William Paley wrote this incredibly influential book that God is like this watchmaker. He sets up the watch. He sets up the universe. You can see that there is design written into the universe. It's this smooth running machine is how Paley put it. And a lot of people accepted that idea of God. Um, he's the one behind the universe. It is this smooth running machine. Uh, and the conflict, in a sense, that a lot of people have seen historically between science and faith is really no conflict at all. Um, Sir Isaac Newton, who is seen today as one of the great fathers of scientists, one of the great scientists of our age, he was also a Christian, a slightly unorthodox Christian. He didn't believe in the Trinity, for example, which then gave him trouble um, with his job in Cambridge because he had to believe in the Trinity if he wanted to have a job in Cambridge. But Sir Isaac Newton was just as passionate about his theological writings, of which there were many, as he was about his scientific writings. But he was a breakthrough scientist. He's, he looked back on as one of the greats. He, he wrote about the laws of motion, gravity, and so on. And his book, Principia Mathematica, was one of the widest read science textbooks of its day. Um, and he was a believer. And Newton himself saw science as a sign of the creator. In fact, he, he got into science because he wanted to know how the creator did it. He felt that um, the laws that were part of planetary motions as planets revolved around the sun and so on, those laws which he worked out in a way that no one before him had ever worked out, those laws led to a lawgiver. And so he was very excited in his scientific studies because for him it was like worship. He was seeing how God put the whole thing together, but he was clearly a believer in scripture. And uh, in fact, many of the early scientists, Faraday and so on, people who are acknowledged today as some of the great scientists and, and the, the, the forefathers of modern science, they were Bible-believing Christians. And it was their Christianity that led to scientific enterprise. It was, it was this act of worship. Let's see how the creator did it. And you remember Psalm 19 talks about the two books of God. One book is the Bible, the law of God. The other book is the book of nature. God invites us to look at nature and see his glory there. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Catholic poet, wrote, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And of course, Paul in Romans 1 says that God's, God's existence can be clearly seen through what he has made. The Bible encourages us to look at nature, to examine nature, to do scientific enterprise, to understand how God made things. And I think one of the great sadnesses of our day is that a lot of Christians have been set against science. They think science is the evil one, you know, because people have used science as, you know, believing in evolutionary Darwinism and that that is a track that leads towards atheism. And so they said, well, let's ignore science because it takes people towards atheism. It doesn't at all. Again, many of the leading scientists in our day are Bible-believing Christians. In fact, 
um, the world's most famous scientist, Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project. He was invited by President Clinton to head the Human Genome Project, the greatest scientific study of our age, looking at the at human genes and analyzing how genes are put together and actually being able to say what kind of illnesses you may have in the future. In fact, I, I myself, the heart operation I had a few months ago, um, I got to that heart operation operation because of genetic studies that were done on me that showed that I'm going to have the same trouble medically as my mother had, who died at 56. So the studies that, that Francis Collins put together um, were the leading studies done in science in the world of our day, um, unpacking the human genome and all that it teaches us. And Francis Collins is an outspoken evangelical believer. He puts his science and his faith together. So young Christians in biology classes and physics classes and chemistry classes, you know, keep doing your science to as high a level as you possibly can, and then use your science for the glory of God. Um, Christians cannot pull out of science just because sometimes it makes discoveries that, that trouble us. Um, it's often, of course, the interpretation of discoveries that troubles us, not the discoveries themselves. You know, for example, and I could get onto a hobby horse here, but... Uh, in the 1920s, um, mid-1900s, when the Hubble Space Telescope is launched. And this space telescope uncovers that really there is more than just our galaxy. Our galaxy has billions of stars, but beyond our galaxy, there are actually billions of stars. And this Hubble Space Telescope revealed that these galaxies are moving away from each other. And actually, the noise of them moving away from each other, microwave radiation, as was discovered in the mid-1900s, teaches us that the universe began at a single infinitesimally small point, which science has called the Big Bang. And the first person to coin the phrase the Big Bang was a physicist called Sir Fred Hoyle in the mid-1900s. He was an atheist with a capital A. He hated the idea of the Big Bang. He was very reluctant to accept it. And he was complaining in his day that you scientists are reading far too much Genesis. That's exactly what he said. Because, of course, this instantaneous explosion, which was the creation of the universe that led to laws and order and this fine tuning that leads to human life on our little planet Earth. That was pointing from Sir Fred Hosangle so clearly to a creator God, he could not cope with it. He believed, he had believed previously, as most scientists had believed before that point, in what they call the steady state of the universe. The universe has always existed. The universe is eternal. Um, so we don't have to explain anymore. Now, then suddenly discovered, no, the universe had a definite beginning. And that leads more to the idea of God being the all-powerful creator. In the beginning, God said, bang. And uh, that whole idea of time being created at the Big Bang, coalescing of stars and planets forming around stars, and then our own planet with the unique, utterly unique, finely tuned capability for life. And not just any kind of life, but intelligent, conscious life like human beings. And we are just extraordinary. That points to God in ways that are beyond the imagination. In fact, so much so that um, another... Um, Cambridge University physicist called Sir John Polkinghorne, who left his physics lectureship to become an Anglican priest. Um, Sir John Polkinghorne said, often man will look through the microscope thinking that what he's looking out at is glorious and spectacular, when actually the person who is looking through the microscope is more incredible than all the heavens that he is looking at. God has made us fearfully and wonderfully, so we shouldn't be scared of science. Of course, to turn the page here, I better not get too sidetracked by hobby horses. Um, Richard Dawkins is the one that's made us so scared of science. 
and he wrote the book, The Blind Watchmaker. And you can see where that title came from. He was looking at William Paley, who said, you know, the universe is like a giant watch. So clearly there's design behind it. So there must be a God. Richard Dawkins said, no, we can explain all that via this theory of evolution. And to have a theory of evolution, you don't need a God. Things just happen. Substances just came into being. This process of natural selection leads by itself without any consciousness. It's a mindless process where um, things develop in complexity. Um, now, you know, People would say evolution has won the day. Um, I don't think the Dawkins version of evolution has won the way, but I think that we as Christians need to think very carefully um, before we exclude evolution from our thinking. Um, in fact, it's an extraordinary thought. That, I mean, the basis of evolution that, is that somehow um, we move from a single cell to conscious, intelligent, spiritual, purpose-seeking people like you and me. We move from a single cell to that. That seems to express directionality. There was an end in mind in the process of evolution. Of course, there's huge debates today among scientists, even non-Christian scientists are saying, it looks as though evolution has a purpose. There's an end goal in view. But how could there be an end goal in view if, if it's a mindless process? It can't possibly be a mindless process. So what is the mind behind it? Loads of scientists today are saying there is some kind of intelligence behind the universe. A lot of them don't want to go in the direction of an intelligent God of the Bible, but a lot of them are prepared to say there's more to it than simple blind chance. There's just too much design that you can see. And of course, interestingly, um, another sidetrack here, but Charles Darwin um, in the 1850s, bringing out his, his culture-shaping, world-changing book, The Origin of Species, um, he took a single cell for granted. He said all life started from a single cell, and his idea was that there was some, you know, cosmic accident, some chemical explosion in chemical soup, you know, however many billion years ago, and suddenly, by accident, this single cell formed, and then it developed into lots of other different cells and combined together. Of course, when Darwin was writing about that, scientists had no idea how complex even a single cell is. A single cell is like a factory, even though you have to look under a microscope to see it. The interconnecting parts of a cell are so sophisticated that scientists say there is absolutely no way that a single cell could have emerged by chance. There is so much organization within it. And of course, Richard Dawkins has been running away from that idea by saying his theory. Now, one of his theories for how that first single cell developed is that he calls it panspermia, that uh, there were aliens um, who brought this, um, this life-giving capacity and left it on the earth. And that's what created these cells that led to life. That's where he has to go um, to avoid the idea of God. Um, so, you know, which are you going for today? Um, panspermia, that aliens brought something, you know, and there's no evidence for aliens whatsoever, not in our galaxy or any other, um, that aliens brought this together um, to bring a single cell to Earth, or that God is in charge of the process that leads to creation. Those are the big questions of our day. Um, just to mention here on a less scientific note, um, a, a French guy called Voltaire was a leading theist as well. This idea that there's a God out there, but he's impersonal. Voltaire would have believed in this kind of deist God, but he mocked Protestants and Catholics. Um, he particularly mocked institutional Christianity. And in fact, he wrote a very satirical book, which I had to study for my university degree in French, um, a book called Candide, and Candide sets out 
the life of a daughter of a pope. That's how Voltaire wrote. He wrote cynically. He wrote with great satire, um, showing the immorality that popes had had. You know, popes aren't meant to have daughters, but this pope had a daughter, and the whole thing is about the life of his daughter. And he exposed some of the ridiculousness of religion. And when you read Voltaire, actually, a lot of his comments about institutional religion are very true. Um, it would be very interesting if Voltaire had truly met a sincere Bible-believing born-again Christian. He might have changed his definition of, of who this personal God was, but he mocked the institutional church, and in many ways, rightly so. So that's the philosophy that's beginning to develop now, this deism, this challenging of biblical authority of institutional church, this man can create his own reason, man can make his own progress without reference to any other authority, man is basically good, man can choose good, man can create his own reality, um, he doesn't need a God to tell him what to do. Now, while that's happening, um, God intervenes miraculously, is the only way you can describe it, so point two here is this tremendous period of time in the 1740s when God sent a revival, which has been nicknamed the Great Awakening, a revival that hasn't been seen since, hadn't been seen since the days of the apostles. And uh, the men at the heart of this revival were George Whitfield and John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley. Now, the stories of these men are fascinating. And one of, the, one of the things I hope you get into as a result of this church history course, in fact, as a result of NASGT, is reading biographies of great Christians. It builds you up in no other way. The best single biography that I have ever read, and I've heard other people say this, it was written in the 1970s by a man called um, Arnold Dallimore, and it's about George Whitfield. Two volumes. Volume one is the standout. Volume two is decent, but volume one, to my view, is life-changing. Um, the life of George Whitfield and the revival that came through his preaching and his connection with John and Charles Wesley. These men met as students in Oxford, so they were clever guys. Um, and they began in their religious zeal, they began what they called the Holy Club. In fact, they didn't call it the Holy Club. It was fellow students at Oxford who called it the Holy Club as a kind of a term of mockery. And these boys met and they read the New Testament in Greek together. They were serious students and they fasted almost to the extent that uh, they made themselves ill, a little bit like Luther had done previously. So they were fastidious, devoted um, uh, uh, followers of Christ. Uh, and they said as they were going to their holy club meetings, fellow students would actually throw stones and mud at them as they were doing this. So they had to take courage in their hands as they were pursuing Christ. And uh, they would say later in their journals that it was having stones and mud th thrown at them as they were students that made them bold and courageous and made them the public preachers that they were in days to come. So, um, you know, you might be going through some struggle in your life right now. and You think, God, would you take this struggle away? Would you take this persecution away? And yet God is using that persecution in, to make you into the man or woman that he wants you to be. He wants you to be courageous and you will take a bold stand following this persecution that you would never have done had God not allowed that persecution to come your way. That's just a biblical principle. Um, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom and, and attacks make us more courageous and, and refine our character and leads to perseverance and hope and all of those good things that Romans 5 talk about. Anyway, um, these boys were refined by the persecution as they were pursuing Christ. 
um, they became preachers of the word in Oxford and Bristol, but they were thrown out of churches. And the church of this time, 1740s, Anglicanism was very cerebral. It was dry. Deism was such an influence. Of course, deism was influence, influencing the churches. So if, if you can imagine how deism, this general belief in a God, but it's not very personal. He's not a challenging God. He's not a God who tells me how to live rightly. Um, so lots of people were floating into church, doing their ritual, believing that there was some kind of God out there, but he didn't really, he wasn't the kind of God that interfered in my life from Monday to Saturday. In the midst of that, um, George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley, these firebrands came. And of course, being firebrands and preaching gospel, preaching conversion, preaching justification by faith in particular, the great Reformation theme, um, other kind of liberal, tired, cold Anglican clergy dismissed them from the churches. And this was the start of open air preaching as we know it today. Um, John and Charles Wesley and, and Whitfield, they decided, I'm not, I'm not going to settle for this. I'm not going to be banned from preaching in the churches. Let's go to the open fields. And these men were such powerful preachers, especially George Whitfield. This is Whitfield standing um, in his biography. It's fascinating. Whitfield had a squint in his eye, but the squint was directed in such a way that it made you look at him. You were drawn to him. He had a magnetic appeal. He had a voice that actors were jealous of, and he had a preaching ability that was like Spurgeon, just an unusually gifted man of God who was also totally devoted to God. What a dynamic combination that is. You can have all the gifts in the world, but if you're not devoted to Christ, those gifts are going to go to waste. But when you get a man who has been unusually gifted as God gave George Whitfield gifts and he is utterly devoted to Christ and willing to give his life for the gospel, then you have a powerful firebrand in the hands of God. And that's exactly what George Whitfield was. And the crowds that gathered to hear him, of course, when you're in the open air, there's no limits to how many crowds you can have in a church building, you know, 500 is a big church building in the, in, in the open airs. There was talk of 60,000, 70,000 coming to hear George Whitfield preach. Um, it's like Old Trafford on a Saturday, just thousands and thousands of people flocking. George Whitfield, yes, he preached the gospel. He was also great to listen to. I mean, people used him for entertainment, if you like, in the day before cinemas and all this kind of thing. George Whitfield was the guy to listen to. And he would often, he would judge where the wind was blowing. He would stand on a pillar like this pillar here. And he would make sure the wind was blowing in a way that would blow his voice towards the people so that they could all hear him. In the days before microphones and so on, you think, how can you speak to 50, 60,000 people? They found a way, just like Jesus in a boat being pushed out from Galilee, speaking to thousands of people. And uh, this, this brought revival. There's no other word for it. Um, the UK at this time was corrupt. It was a drunken mess. It was morally degraded. And it was people like uh, Whitfield and particularly John Wesley who, who cleaned it up in that sense. Now, um, the, the atheist Labour MP, Roy Hattersley, he wrote a fascinating biography of John Wesley. Um, not because Hattersley was drawn to um, evangelicalism, but because Hattersley thought Wesley was a great hero of English history because what he did in his religious way, changed the face, changed the moral decline of England. And drunkenness became less and less. And people began to live more uprightly because of Wesley's impact. Um, so these guys started to preach in the open air. Whitfield was the greatest preacher since the days of the apostles. I think that's, that's not an exaggeration, just an unusually gifted man. Be interesting, actually, to go through the history of great preachers that God used, men like John Chrysostom and the five and six hundreds, people who changed the world. Martin Luther, of course, was a powerful preacher, but few could match George Whitfield for his sheer oratory. Um, so thousands came to hear Whitfield. 
Wesley was a good preacher, probably not on the level of Whitfield. He was a courageous preacher of justification by faith and, and calling people to this born again experience. Here was the power of these men's preaching. Remember, this is the day where deism is infiltrating the church. And so this idea of a personal conversion, a personal experience of God was just anathema. Christians were stopping believing that, even those who believed there was a God. And so these men came with unusual power set against that backdrop to say, you can know God personally, but you need to come to personal faith in God through the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. This was pure evangelical preaching. In fact, the, the, the term evangelical in English was first coined to refer to um, Whitfield and Wesley and the Methodist movement that came out of them. Wesley was not just a good preacher, though. He was a great administrator as well. In fact, that was his special gift. And he will start to organize small groups of men and women who are totally devoted to Christ. That was his method that led to Methodism. But just a little bit about his story, because his story is fascinating as well. I mean, John and Charles Wesley were two children in a family of 10. And uh, their father was a minister, Samuel Wesley, but he was a complete waste of time, spent most of his life away from home, neglected his wife and family. And so Susanna, who is an incredibly godly woman, was left to bring up the children. So she brought up John and Charles, as well as the, her other eight children. And uh, Susanna Wesley, listen to this, ladies. Susanna Wesley took each night of the week to teach her boys Greek and Hebrew so they could understand the scriptures in the original language. I mean, what a woman. Susanna Wesley is the perfect example of a woman who can massively influence the next generation. John Wesley would not have been the man who changed the face of the UK if he didn't have a mother like Susanna. It's just a fact. And of course, Charles Wesley became the great hymn writer. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That, to my mind, greatest hymn in the church's history. Um, that was written by Charles Wesley very soon after his conversion. In fact, he were two firebrands, these brothers together, and they owed it to their mum. A little bit like you remember St. Augustine owed his, a lot of his faith to his mom who had prayed for him, his mother Monica, who almost nagged him into the kingdom. And what a tremendous church leader he became. Mothers, grandmothers, don't underestimate the influence you can have creating the preachers and pastors and leaders of the next generation. Pray for them now that God would do something incredible through them. Um, we'll come to D.L. Moody later. Um, um, and the influence that, that he had on others and um, mothers and grandmothers and so on. Um, I was thinking especially there of George Verwer, sorry, I got him mixed up with Moody. George Verwer, you'll, some of you will know the story of George Verwer, who created Operation Mobilization and has launched these ships across the world to take the gospel to many places. And George Verwer, his conversion story, his famous conversion story is this lady called Dorothea Clapp, just an, an, an old lady um, in her house watched this boy um, who actually had a very bad reputation in his school. He was a naughty boy, George of Herwer. Um, watched this boy passing her living room window, and she just prayed for that boy. That said, Lord, take this boy and make something glorious out of him. She didn't even know the boy at all. And that boy was George Verwer. And he came to faith uh, at a Billy Graham convention, then started to give out tracts in his playground, and then went to Mexico on a mission trip, and then from there launched... Um, OM ships, Operation Mobilization, which has taken the gospel to millions across the world, all began because this lady, um, we don't know anything else that she did in her life, but she prayed for this lad who uh, has changed the evangelical world. So I really am getting distracted tonight, aren't I? Wesley um, went on mission to Georgia after this you know, phenomenal upbringing by his mother, Susanna, went on mission trip to Georgia. Um, during uh, 
that mission trip to Georgia, he realized what an arrogant man he was. Um, his father had been very arrogant. Um, the people of Georgia hated him, so he had no success in his missions because of his arrogance. And on his way home, he was caught up in a storm, John Wesley. And uh, in the storm, he was terrified for his life, as you would be, I suppose. But he noticed in the storm that there were a group of Christians, they were Moravian Christians who were totally calm, totally at peace, totally confident in God. And uh, this so impressed Wesley that when he got back to the UK, um, he joined a group of uh, Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And John Wesley said he, he felt his heart strangely warmed as they were talking about the gospel and justification by faith. And that for him was his moment of conversion. So he had been a zealous student, as he thought, for Christ, going to this holy club and so on, going on mission trips to Georgia. But he hadn't had that personal experience of God. And he would say that that was the moment of his conversion, where his heart was strangely warmed reading with Moravian Christians. So Wesley changes England. George Whitfield ends up traveling to the United States um, during these days of the Great Awakening. Um, now, the United States context was fascinating. There was a, um, a Puritan minister there called Jonathan Edwards. He's another man you need to read about, a godly, godly man. He was a, a Puritan minister in Massachusetts. And he preached this sermon, the kind of sermon you would never preach today, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Can you imagine if that was the title of your sermon this week? Would you go to church? And... Uh, um, Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon with gusto, and he painted these foreboding pictures of, um, of people who were on the end of a spider's web, and they were being dangled over hell. And while he was preaching this sermon, um, people were fainting, they were collapsing in the church. These were manifestations of the Spirit of God. God was moving among them as this no-holds-barred sermon about the wrath of God and hell that was coming was being preached. And that was the spark that lit the Great Awakening. You could get a copy of that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Agro God, today. It's worth reading through and then wondering where his preaching got to today that people don't preach like that anymore. But uh, this, that was the, the seedbed of revival in Massachusetts while revival was starting in England as well. And Jonathan Edwards, just he, he's another fascinating guy to read about. Um, Jonathan Edwards wrote a series of resolutions, 70 resolutions in his life. Um, and each of these resolutions were that, that he would live each day as if it were his last. If he knew that, if you knew that today was the last day you were going to live, how would you live it? And he says, um, we should live each day as if it was going to be the last day we were alive with that kind of urgency, with that kind of utter devotion to God, um, getting rid of anything that hinders us from our devotion to Christ. So you've got these 70 resolutions that Jonathan Edwards produced to show the kind of man he was. Um, live each day as if it was your last. Um, so you have um, Jonathan Edwards preaching revival preaching in Massachusetts, the eastern seaboard of the United States. You have Wesley preaching revival preaching in England. Um, you have Whitfield having crowds of thousands. And what was typical of this preaching, just clear, basic justification by faith, you must be born again kind of preaching with reality of sin and hell and all that kind of stuff, classic evangelical preaching. People were being moved by the hand of God. They became so aware of their, their sinfulness. And you have letters going on at this time between Whitfield in America and Wesley in England saying something like this. Dear John, um, I was preaching to 50,000 people yesterday in Massachusetts and um, there were people swooning. There were people being carried out. I'm a bit worried about this. 
because I don't know if this is a fleshly manifestations or if this is Holy Spirit manifestations. I just preach the gospel and the power of God seems to come. And these people are, are showing uncontrollable manifestations as they're deeply aware of their sin. Wesley writes back, exactly the same thing happened to me um, last night, preaching in Bristol or wherever it was to thousands of people and people are being carried out under the weight of sin. They, they cannot cope with this. They need, they're crying out for the mercy and grace of God. There's the key to revival, actually. There was a revival a few years ago or something that claimed to be a revival that was called the Laughing Revival. Um, the Toronto Blessing, you might have known about it. Now, I don't want to make any judgment calls on the Toronto Blessing, but it didn't seem that it was based on an awareness of sin. And a lot of the great revivals from the past, 1741, 1904 in Cardiff, for example, um, the 1940s in, uh, uh, in Shetland and so on, um, Lewis revival, these great revivals, um, the key mark of these, two key marks of these revivals, number one, people prayed, they prayed like never before, they prayed because Christianity was at a low ebb at the time, you know, young people leaving the church and so on, that was certainly 1904 Cardiff, they pray and pray and pray, and then there's a breakthrough. And Holy Spirit power is released in a way that's difficult to describe. And the manifestation of the Spirit is that people feel flattened by sin. They are aware of the holiness of God, the transcendent holiness of God. That's what's making them fall to the ground. And there's that great story of um, in Lewis when Duncan Campbell, the great revival preacher, was coming at two o'clock in the morning because chapels were open until two o'clock when people were so hungry for God. They left their dance halls. They came to these chapels. Duncan Campbell was cl climbing the steps of his church and was trying to get to the pulpit, but he couldn't get there because there were people strewn across the floor. And there was a young woman who was a, a student at Aberdeen University. And as she was strewn on the floor, she was crying out, is there any mercy for me? Is there any mercy for me? That's revival. And we need to pray in our generation because revivals tended to come when Christianity was at a low ebb. And is that not our day in Scotland? And is it not right for us to gather together and say, Lord, will you so manifest your holy presence once again? Will you so move your hand in power and might that people will taste and feel and see the presence of the living God and they will be overcome by their sin and they will cry out for the grace and mercy of the cross? That's what we need to be praying for again. God can do it. He's the same God that worked through the Wesleys and Whitfield. But it takes men and women who are totally devoted to him, totally devoted to preaching, to prayer, and to the core gospel truths. So all of this is happening. And uh, as revival is, is pouring out, John Wesley, this great administrator, is bringing together his zealous groups for accountability. These are fascinating groups, groups of 12. Always chose 12, like the 12 disciples. And in fact, I've done a Young Leaders Academy in Deeside. I've done it for several years, and I picked 12 guys just copying Wesley. And uh, this Methodism was just absolutely rigorous. Um, of course, it was attacked by the Anglican churches who didn't like these Christians that were suddenly taking Christianity oh so very seriously. But Wesley would gather together these groups of 12, and he would ask them accountability questions. Let me, I'm going to look up just now on Google. Here was John Wesley's accountability questions. You had to agree to these accountability questions um, if you could be part one of these groups. Listen to some of these. There were 22 questions that John Wesley, that these groups had to ask each other every week. Number one, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? 
I would take that. Number two, am I honest in all my acts and words or do I exaggerate? Number three, do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Number four, can I be trusted? You had to be willing to hear these questions and answer them as honestly as you could before 12 other guys who, who were holding your soul in their hands. Number five, am I a slave to dress, to friends, to work, or to habits? Number six, am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? You go through 22 questions like that. You had to be asked those questions every week. And then at the very end, you had to ask the question, are you lying to me? <laughs> you had to answer that question. Are you lying about this? And you had to talk about who you were speaking. When was the last time you spoke to somebody about Christ? Are you enjoying prayer? Um, do I grumble or complain constantly? All of this kind of stuff. And these were the groups that, that cut out the dross of Christians who were just trampling to church but without any real heart. Suddenly, through this revival spirit and John Wesley's accountability groups, a new zeal was born in men and women in England. And this is where Methodism began. And my guess is that John Wesley would absolutely be rolling in his grave now to see at what some of Methodism has become, which you know barely holds on to the Bible today. He was absolutely rigorous. Some might say he went too far. But I tell you, there was a sense of holiness in his groups and a sense of power and a sense of purity that changed the face of a drunken, um, a drunken, debauched England of his day. Um, Wesley was tireless as well, as was Whitfield. I mean, you have stories of Whitfield in America. He, he rides, he, he finishes preaching at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night in one area. He gets on his horse. And he doesn't sleep at all. He just rides his horse to the next venue. So he's ready for seven, eight o'clock the next morning. He's just been on his horse all night. And sometimes, you know, stooped over his horse, he would say, the Lord gave me special energy at that time. Um, and I was able to preach at seven o'clock, eight o'clock the next day. Wesley was exactly the same. Wesley traveled 50, for 50 years on horseback all across England, everywhere he went. And you've still got these um, kind of itinerant, Methodist preachers, this itinerant style came from Wesley himself. Um, another side to that story, of course, is that Wesley had a pretty terrible marriage. And lots of people were saying he spent so much time on horseback away from home because he wanted to get away from his wife as much as possible. So God can even use bad marriages for his own glory. Um, there, again, you know, you can make Wesley and Whitfield these great heroes. There were clashes between them. Um, Wesley was an Armenian believing in you know, free will and people make a choice to follow Christ. Whitfield was the Calvinist who talked about divine sovereignty, God who's in control of salvation. And um, at the heat of their controversy, while actually Whitfield was in America, John Wesley was producing tracts against Whitfield and was sending them out in the streets of Bristol and so on. Um, tracts against the, the, the horrific doctrine of Calvinism as he saw it. And so there were these clashes between Whitfield and Wesley, uh, so much so that once um, a reporter, because these guys were national news, a reporter asked Whitfield, um, Mr. Whitfield, do you think you'll see Mr. Wesley in heaven? He was obviously looking for some gossip. And Mr. Whitfield turned around to the crowd and he says, uh, no, I don't think I'll see him in heaven. And the reporter thought, all right, I'm really onto a story here. And then Whitfield said, I won't be able to see Mr. Wesley because he'll be so close to the throne that I'll be nowhere near him. 
and actually the, the relationship between Wesley and Whitfield was healed in the end so much so that, that Wesley wanted Whitfield to take his funeral at the end of it. But there were clashes between these great men of God over Armenianism versus Calvinism. And you look back now and you think, you know, these were both men who were mightily used by God, both believed in salvation by grace through faith, preached justification for all their hearts, and then made too big a deal of the differences of just exactly how salvation works, which was a tragedy when both men were clearly used by God in a miraculous way to change the face of the UK and elsewhere. Right, we are 84. Um, let's not move on to the age of progress yet. I hope you've got Whitfield and Wesley in your bones. We don't want to do the French Revolution to spoil that incredible. I'll just finish now the Wesley and Whitfield bit with a, with a vision. Um, uh, 1743 was it um, one of the great revivals that um, Whitfield was involved in was in Scotland the Cambuslang revival and I remember reading pages of this stuff um, Whitfield came and they did communion in the open air there were thousands there Cambuslang was just southeast of Glasgow and in this huge open field where a Whitfield is preaching hours and hours a day, you know, he would preach from nine till 11. And then another minister who was involved in the revival would preach from 11 till one and so on. One in the morning, people were just hanging around there. The presence of God was so felt. And then they shared communion with each other. Um, these were days in Scotland. These were days just outside Glasgow when the spirit of God was moving. And you need to get some of that into your system. It changed me. I remember I was in Australia when I first started reading this Whitfield book. And it started to make me long to pray for days of revival and also to believe in the God of revival. I don't want to believe in a God who just gives small things because that's not the real God. Um, I want to believe in the God who can do more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. Um, Ephesians 3 will teach us that. So, um, this is why church history is so fascinating. You, you see men who put God to the test in that sense, utterly devoted to him, believed he could, do, that he could do more than all you could ask or imagine, and he did. He moved in unprecedented ways. May he do so again. Um, just before I finish that last revival point, one of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer um, that I think about a lot. Anything God has ever done, he can do today. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. Um, I think we need to raise our expectations of God in our generation and pray accordingly. God is looking for intercessors who believe in his um, incredible power and uh, put his power to the test and uh, claim a nation back for him again. Anyway, um, from the sublime to the not so sublime, we're looking at the age of progress now. Point three here is the French Revolution. And uh, French Revolution is important in all kinds of ways. Obviously, it doesn't just affect the church, but it has huge impacts on Christian history. Um, there was this famous raiding of the Bastille, which was a prison in France, a prison in Paris. And the reason why these guys were raiding the Bastille, it was a kind of a working class revolution. They were looking for the bullets and the, uh, the guns that they could find in the Bastille so that they could start a revolution. And the revolution was a revolt against the monarchy and religious authority. So this theme has been growing. You remember it's a couple of hundred years ago when we were thinking about, you know, papal supremacy being questioned and uh, 
people wondering who had seen the, the abuses within the Catholic Church in particular, who were starting to question the authority of religion. Um, there was then a wider questioning about the bourgeoisie of society, generally the power brokers, you know, that that um, 10 percent of the people held 90 percent of the power. That was very much at the heart of the French Revolution. And the 90 percent decided that this was time to change things. So they raided the Bastille. And they had as their slogan, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Freedom, Equality and Brotherhood. Um, let's not um, be slaves to the power brokers anymore. Um, let's fight for human rights. And all of this was linked with individual human rights, um, the working class wanting more rights for themselves. And you think there's something good about this. The way they went about it was not the best way of going about it. But in many ways, the church had rejected the working class. They wanted to keep kind of um, church leaders were the elite. The church leaders were the ones who got all the education. Um, and the church just took the working class for granted. It's a sweeping generalization, but they took the working class for granted. And now the church and other authorities who, who uh, had very happily led and uh, subjected people to all kinds of harsh living over years, now there was a complete revolution turning on upside down. At the height of the French Revolution, um, there was a, a clear attack on religion in that they went to Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, that huge cathedral, kind of Gothic cathedral in Paris, and they took the Christian altar that was there and they dismantled the altar, and in its place they built the altar of freedom. So you could see the, the real imagery there. Here is religion um, with its power, with its downgrading of working class people, of lower class people, with its unquestioned authority. Let's get rid of that unquestioned authority and the abuses of that and the religious wars that we're all sick of. And instead, we will put freedom. Freedom is our new God, human freedom. Let the working class rise and be who they want to be and not be downtrodden anymore. And so... Uh, sociologists would say, they don't have to be Christian sociologists, you look back and say, in a sense, the glory of God, which had been the driving point of Christendom, this thousand year time when the church ruled um, Europe, um, Christendom was gone now, the glory of God was being replaced by the glory of man, humanism, men can work out their own life for themselves. And of course, this growing idea, if we can get our social and political institutions right, if we can educate people properly and we get just the right systems in place, then we will reach a utopia. We will reach our own version of heaven without God. It's just like the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11. You know, men got together to make a name for themselves and they built this tower as in their way of reaching heaven by their own strength, by their own devices. This was very much what was what was at the background of the French Revolution. Man can conquer. We have no time or place for God, we can build our own heaven, our own dreams of utopia. Um, and of course, throughout all of this, the doctrine that gets lost is this doctrine of original sin, that there is no, you know, whatever political structure you find, whatever structure of society that you find, um, there is no perfect structure because it will be sinful human beings that are ruling in that structure. And whoever's in power, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, that was true of the church and a lot of non-Christians that went into leadership, but when the church was set to one side, that was certainly true of kind of humanist philosophies and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So there was no understanding of original sin, which blights even the best political and social ideologies. So in a sense, the French Revolution was, uh, was uh, damned from day one. 
Um, but as this whole idea of, of the working class getting more authority was on the rise, there was a push for the right to vote, um, for the right to have a say in the running of your country. Because, of course, it was 10% of the people who were holding all the power. Let's turn that around. Um, this was the beginnings of socialism, this idea that the working class needed to be protected. They needed to have, you know, employment rights and all of this kind of thing, again, which was good. And I think as Christians, we need to applaud the thought of looking after the poor, looking after working class people, having good rights, um, that they're treated fairly and not downtrodden by power brokers. Of course, you don't want the pendulum to swing entirely the other way, where all the power is in the hands of the working class or their unions and so on, and, and everything in the society grinds to a halt. I think in our day, probably, there is such an anti-authoritarianism going on that the pendulum has swung the other way. Um, and the authority figures which we need, like government officials, to keep the country moving and to keep the country going in the right direction, they are so criticized. They're, they're treated with the same satire today that Voltaire treated the church in his day. So we need to be very careful that we don't become anti-authoritarian because as Romans 13 will tell us, all government has been given by God. That was talking about Nero's government in Romans 13. If Nero's government who were burning Christians was uh, given by God, then um, so much more uh, modern um, Western democracies. Now, during all this time, while the church's, church's authority is being rejected, how did the Roman Catholic Church respond? Not very well, I think history will say. Rather than the Roman Catholic Church saying, look, we have done wrong in the past. We have undermined working class people. We have taken them for granted. Instead of doing that, they just became more entrenched in their traditions. They fought to get their traditions back, to get their authority back. And so they retreated, in, in a sense, into traditional Catholicism. They wanted to re-exert their authority, which popes, of course, had done each time that they were attacked, but that never works. You cannot enforce Christianity on people. You can't enforce authority on people. Um, and they should have admitted that they had given little thought to the working class of the peasants. And the Church of Rome was then seen very much as the old order. This is archaic now. We, we're done with church. We're done with bishops. We're done with priests. They've done us no good. They just belittle us and they just like to keep all the power to themselves. And of course, a lot of that was simply true. And church then was seen as the opposite of human rights and freedom of expression. And of course, you see how that's carried on till today. You know, the church today is seen very much as opposing human rights, you know, opposing sexual freedom, opposing all kinds of uh, freedom of expression, which, of course, a lot of which the Bible calls immorality. But, uh, you know, down with the church because it's anti the freedoms that, uh, you know, if only we could get rid of, of, of moral, of the moral authoritarianism that the church brings, then we can live life the way we want to live it. And these issues that started in the French Revolution are still very much alive today. Pope Pius IX um, famously claimed at this stage, papal infallibility. I hope you like this picture. Um, I mean, what a picture that is. I mean, if, if there ever is a picture of the church's power and wealth, that's it. He's standing at the you know, top of the Vatican, Vatican Square, you know, millions of followers, and he is, he is the undisputed head of the church. And uh, Pope Pius IX was claiming papal infallibility. Here was him retreating back into the authority structures that he knew. And um, Pope Pius railed against socialism, railed against these working class people who were wanting new freedoms, railed against rationalism, you know, so that he, I mean, um, the popes would say, look, you need the church for your salvation. You need revelation from God alone. Let's get rid of rationalism and reason. 
And of course, a lot of people then just completely rejected the church because they were discovering things about science and things about history that the Roman Catholic Church felt very uncomfortable about. Of course, if you go back historically, when Galileo first was discovering, you know, our solar system and the fact that the Earth was not the center of the universe, as had been thought for generations, but it actually circled around the sun, the people who opposed that science, which has been since proven to be absolutely correct, the people who opposed that were the Catholic Church. And uh, now they look rather silly for doing that. And here again was the Pope um, pushing against these changes that were happening in society, freedom of the press. Um, Catholic Church didn't like that because the press could say anything they wanted to about the Catholic Church. So they felt that was going to undermine the church's authority. And of course, um, the idea of the separation of church from state you know, highlighted by taking down that altar in Notre Dame and putting up freedom in its place. Um, Pope Pius just railed against it. He, he did not feel the heart, um, the heart of this movement that was looking for, for working class people to have their say, who had been disenfranchised by the church. So the Catholic Church went back in on itself, I think, in a very unhealthy way. They should have modernized the church to influence a generation that was changing rather than retreating into their old traditions. I think we find the same challenges today in the evangelical church, don't we? The evangelical church can't just kind of hide behind its four walls and saying, you know, look how awful society is. We're getting rid of all these Christian values, all these Christian virtues. Let's sit in our holy huddles. Let's let's. Um, protect each other um, let's hold on tightly until Christ returns again no the evangelical church is called to be salt and light in the immorality of today we have got a lot to say about the moral confusion of our age we have hope to bring about life after death when people think that we came from nowhere and are headed nowhere we've got to get out there and influence the people and understand where people are coming from today people who are looking for purpose there's still spirituality out there. We need to tap into that spirituality that people feel and bring the gospel to bear on it because people are still made in the image of God and people still have a longing and hunger for God. What they don't want is church being traditional, church being about rule keeping, church being about how you dress or how you look. Um, we need fresh expressions, as they say of real believers living authentic Christian lives out in the world and influencing the world for Christ rather than retreating back into a kind of bunker mentality. I think that's what the Catholics did um, during the French Revolution. Point four here is about Protestants, actually, who were going out and doing good in society and changing society that way. Um, the Clapham sect is a fascinating group. Just to give you a bit of background to the Clapham sect, um, in the 19th century, that's where we're in now, the 1800s, um, England was the world superpower, you know, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. London was the largest city in the world, the most influential city um, of its time. And uh, evangelicals in the UK, they threw themselves into social reforms. One of the things that came from Methodism in the 1740s was not just preaching the gospel, justification by faith, but bringing social action to bear as well. Um, being good news as well as preaching good news, putting those two things together. In fact, Charles Wesley, um, very soon after his conversion, he went down to a prison and he sat with a black guy who was going to be going to the gallows. And he read the scriptures with him. And then when he, this man was being called out of his prison cell to go to the gallows um, on, a, on a wagon, um, uh, Wesley went with him, went with him on the wagon, held his hand all the way to the gallows 
And even while the man was being put in a noose, Wesley was there holding his hand, praying to him for the grace of God. And as, of course, you're going on these wagons toward your death, you're being pelted with vegetables. That's what people did. They pelted with them with vegetables. So Wesley was being hit by these vegetables as he was showing grace and compassion to this man and praying from all the way. That was typical of the social reform that came. Um, George Whitfield started orphanages. So he didn't just say, I'm coming to preach the gospel and then leave you to it. A lot of the gospel preaching that Whitfield did, he did among um, the slaves and the plantations in Massachusetts. That's where a lot of these spirituals come from, you know. Um, um, Swing low, sweet chariot coming to, for to carry me home. You know, songs like that. Um, um, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. It was slaves that were singing those songs. And Whitfield felt, I can't just come and give them John 3.16. I've got to come and care for their social needs as well. And this is what the Clapham sect did on the background of that Methodist um, social action movement. They began to do social action. I've just put in here a very interesting, I, I think, the best definition of what it means to be evangelical from a man called David Bebbington. These four parts to it. And we've got to keep each part, um, each part alive today. Number one, conversionism. So a per, we are all born into sin and there needs to be a moment of conversion where we move from darkness to light. We move from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Conversion and you must be born again. Biblicism, um, evangelicals are Bible driven. So if you get rid of the Bible, you can't be evangelical. Liberalism has just completely torn that to shreds. We don't stand over the Bible saying which bits we like, and which bits we don't like. We are under the Bible saying this is the authoritative word of God. And we live under it. That is biblicism. Crucicentrism is this idea that the cross of Christ is the central story of Christianity. We are men and women of the cross, where Christ died to pay the price for our sins. That's always been core in evangelicalism. And activism, this is the thing that maybe we have forgotten. Um, activism, social action, being good news, as well as preaching good news. We need to, to get back into that. If we're 1.5% evangelicals in Scotland, as I keep on saying, how are we going to win the world again? It won't just be by standing in our pulpits preaching the gospel. It'll be about getting out there, influencing the culture, influencing society, doing good. Um, and then as the world sees us doing good, sees the love of Christians, they will then be ready to hear the gospel in its right context. So we're going to be doing both. Um, conversionism, biblicism, crucicentrism, and activism. And that's what these Clapham sect people were all about evangelicals wanted to cure social ills before the state took over in a sense the state in the uk which has taken over welfare services um in a sense that the church used to run welfare in the days of wesley and whitfield and these guys they ran welfare it was the church that was doing the good then the state took over and, and evangelicals pulled back we need to get back to the days of of um being good news. Interestingly, John Merson, my colleague, was saying today about um, the, the Lord Provost of Aberdeen, who is praising faith groups, and he's not a Christian himself, but he's wanting faith groups to be very active. So police and council are wanting Christians to do what Christians do, loving the culture, um, street pastors, um, food shelters, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and think about your community where your church is. Um, the Charity Commission will say, if you want to keep charitable status, you've got to say, if this church, if this charity was removed from this particular community, would the community even notice? Are you good news to your community? Now, that doesn't mean 
you go the good new the, the the social active route and not the gospel route it's saying they both go hand in hand in fact social action is part of the gospel you've got to preach christ died for our sins and all of that you cannot escape that to go down the social action route the two go hand in hand but um the council and um the police are looking for and, and are delighting in when the church which uh, brings volunteers to just give up themselves to bless the community like street pastors on a friday night saturday morning um out on the town helping people um not proselytize not throwing the bible down people's throats but just showing love as they go to earn the right to bring the gospel it's great stuff clapham sect was all about that the Clapham sect were a group of well-to-do friends. These were influential people that God had placed in the right place at the right time. They were parliamentarians, some of them, or big business leaders, and they lived in the Clapham area of London, which is why they were called the Clapham sect. And this local parish minister called John Venn realized that he couldn't just preach the gospel in his pulpit. He needed to see these. He was in, in relationship with these men and women who were influential in his church and in his surrounding. And he thought, well, let's get together to really make a difference in this nation. And of course, some of those guys were people like Lord Shaftesbury and William Wilberforce, probably the most famous of them all. And a host of social reforms were launched from this Clapham sect, including the Church Missionary Society. You can understand what these people did. The Society for Bettering the Condition of the Poor. But in a sense, the Roman Catholic Church were saying, we hate this working class revolution. You just come back to the Catholic Church and, you know, the Pope's infallible. That was their response. This Protestant response was actually let us work for the better conditions of the poor because they need better conditions. You know, 16 year olds going down mines need better conditions when the Industrial Revolution comes along. Christians should be at the forefront of that, working for orphans, working for widows and so on. The New Testament has that all over the place. Remember, Paul when he's being commissioned in Galatians um, by Peter and James and the so-called pillars of the church, um, making sure that they preach justification by faith. He said, the one thing we all had to agree upon was that they would take an interest in the poor. This is New Testament Christianity, which the church needs to rediscover. Um, they developed the Society for Prison Reform. And some of the best work that's being done by evangelicals today, changing the culture, is in prisons um and some marvelous stories i don't know if you've ever heard jonathan aiken speak who obviously was the tory minister that is great tory minister who ended up in prison got saved in prison and now heads prison fellowship some wonderful work being done there to a genuinely captive audience who don't need to be told too many times that they are sinners um so uh, and then of course right at the heart of this social movement uh, william wilberforce looks for the abolition of slavery um, and i would commend the movie amazing grace which takes a few liberties of the wilberforce story but you get the idea um that william wilberforce fought tooth and nail and he was fighting the power brokers of his day um slavery was big money slavery was huge in economics and when wilberforce came to the fore he got a lot of opposition from parliament and big business but he kept on going and kept on going made himself ill actually um and, you know, there were famous pictures of him taking wealthy aristocrats and parliamentarians and showing them slave galleys that these guys hadn't seen before and showing the awful treatment of these African-American slaves in particular, uh, you know, tied to ships and saying, you know, these are people made in the image of God. This is a disgrace what we are doing. And of course, it was, it was Wilberforce's biblical values that led him to this. Of course, a lot of Christians, particularly in America, were quite pro-slavery and a lot of people defended slavery from a biblical standpoint, um, which is actually indefensible. Um, but Wilberforce said, no, we need to bring slavery to an end. 
And uh, I mean, it's very emotional, this, this movie, Amazing Grace, just as Wilberforce is on his last legs, he will soon die. The announcement is made that would bring um, slavery to an end, 1833, the abolition of slavery. Now we say abolition of slavery, slavery is still going on today. And it needs modern day Whitfields, particularly where human trafficking is concerned, modern day Whitfields to come and uh, say, this is not right, this is unjust. We need to use all the powers given to us as influential Christians to end injustice across the world, particularly where human trafficking is concerned. Right, what are we now? We are 10 to nine. I'm gonna skip totally the Oxford movement because it's pretty boring anyway. It's just basically about high Anglicans who wanted to move to the Catholic church. We will move past that. And I wanna finish today with the modern missionary movement because that is extremely exciting. Um, lots of famous names you will find here in the modern mission movement. Um, Protestantism in the 1800s, as I've said here, was largely European and American. And actually, Protestants were very slow off the mark to think about international missions. Remember, we've looked at missionaries in the past, starting with Gregory the Great in 600 AD, that, that Catholic Pope who sent people like Augustine to Canterbury to, to evangelize um, the English. Um, you remember um, Catholics like Francis Xavier, who went to Japan. We talked about one of my heroes, Bartolome de las Casas, who went with the conquistadores, and uh, you know, when uh, the church, in a sense, was bringing the sword to convert um, South Americans. Las Casas saying, this isn't the right way to do it. We need the Bible. We need grace. We need to bless these people. So missions, the Catholics had been doing a lot of missionary work over the years. Um, Protestantism was slow, and, and this is one of the main reasons why Protestantism was slow to reach the world for Christ, because of a version of Calvinism, which I don't think is a true version of Calvinism, but this idea that, you know, if God is sovereign and he saves who he will, I don't need to do very much to reach the nations for Christ. If God elects, why do we need to go to the heathen? And that is, of course, the battle that William Carey faced. He had an interest in the world. He was a poor shoemaker, but he had a fascination with the world, wanted to do traveling, but was a committed Christian who wanted to bring the gospel to the heathen. And in fact, in 1792, he produced this pamphlet, um, which was about um, the means for the conversion of the heathen. And he was totally rejected by the leaders of his church who said, you know, if God wants to save these heathen, he'll do it himself. He doesn't need us. It's incredible that they had that appalling idea. Because, of course, Paul, where we get, where, where Calvin got his ideology from, Paul also said, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. How could a Calvinist ever write that? Um, but here was um, a Calvinism full of love that said, um, God doesn't want us to just sit back smoking our cigars while he saves the world. We are his hands and his feet. God uses us. And yes, God does sovereignly call people to salvation. But how, how shall they believe when they have not heard the gospel? And how can they hear unless someone is sent? William Carey took these things to heart. And um, he ended up going to Serampore in India. I mean, he was a complete revolutionary. Nobody was doing this kind of thing before. You might have gone to India for business. You certainly did not go to India for religious purposes. Um, back in his day, 1792, when, of course, you know, it was long boat trips and dangerous travel. But he ended up in Serampore. Um, there was a, a slight tragedy to his story in that his, his wife, Dorothy, was opposed to Kerry going. She was very reluctant to go. She eventually went and then went insane while she was there and she died very young. There was a tragedy and it, it, it makes you rethink almost the Kerry story. And somebody came out with this great quote for Dorothy. 
Kerry should have stayed in England looking after his wife. But for India, I'm glad that he didn't. Here was this great missionary who um, well, sacrificed his family to some extent um, so that he could get the gospel to India. There's no neat package story here. But Kerry was a brilliant Bible translator. This was his main work. He translated the Bible into multiple Indian languages, um, languages that sometimes he was inventing the language just so that he could get the Bible into that language. He's a brilliant, hard, hard worker. In fact, there's an amazing story um, of, of Kerry. At one stage, he has built up a warehouse full of manuscripts and dictionaries and, you know, thousands of hours of work devoted to these manuscripts. And it's burned to the ground, probably by some arsonist who doesn't like what he's doing, burned to the ground. And Carey weeps and weeps. But then he says, um, I realized then I had become too proud of my own work and the Lord brought me low so that I might serve him more faithfully. What a man of God he was. And he just got back to it again. He had lost all his work after years of sacrifice. He just did it all again, kept on translating the Bible into these multiple languages. And eventually, through hard work over years, these things didn't happen overnight. And there was lots of opposition on the way, which we don't have time to go into. But he translated the, the, um, the Bible into over 30 different Indian dialects and started a church planting movement. And that church planting movement led to over 10,000 churches being planted in India. He called them Hebron ministries, quite fascinatingly. And of course, the thing about great missionaries, great pioneers like Kerry is that they inspire others. And a whole generation of missionaries, including folks like Henry Martin, a famous missionary to India, they were inspired by Kerry. A um, little bit like, you know, the story of my own father. Um, my own father was inspired by Jim Elliott in the 1950s. And uh, he was thinking about missionary work and he was thinking about Pakistan, but then he felt the more leading into Ethiopia. And so on the back of reading Jim Elliott's story about going to the tribe of um, Alka Indians in South America. My father was inspired by that and went to Ethiopia where he planted a church. And um, I won't tell you the whole story. There was about 25 in the church when he left it under government persecution. The church went underground. And uh, when it came back um, after, after the communist government was overthrown, um, the church had a thousand people. And today it's over 50,000. And... Uh, Lot, about 80 different churches all planted um, in the south of Ethiopia. Um, quite extraordinary um, when people just devote themselves to starting a work small and God makes that work catch fire and brings other people to join that work. My dad has thrilling stories about young, young men in their late teens, early 20s who gathered around our kitchen table in Addis Ababa and he just taught them the Bible knowing that he was having to go very soon because it was dangerous to be a, a missionary in Ethiopia with the communist government there. And some of those young guys, late teenagers, early 20s, became powerhouse bishops and leaders and uh, started a Bible college. And now there are over 100 evangelists linked to these, these group of churches. Just thrilling what God does when one man, one woman takes a bold step to move in a direction that no one's ever moved before but goes trusting God and then God creates a whole revolution and inspires others to join the work. And the, the, the fruit is mammoth. We sow the seed and God provides the increase. So that was William Carey and his life and the thousands of churches planted. David Livingston, of course, one of the famous missionaries of this time. Um, interestingly with Livingston, he was, he was a brilliant scientist. He was an explorer 
and he brought the gospel to Africa, but again, brought a lot of social action with it as well. He used his medical skills and his scientific knowledge to trek across Africa. And he said, um, he looked at the slavery in Africa, and he said the way to beat slavery was to increase commerce among the poorest Africans. So he came with practical solutions as well as the gospel story of Jesus. You had to do both. Uh, I remember my father saying, you know, when he was planting a church in Addis Ababa, um, Ethiopia was the fourth poorest country in the world according to the data when he went. And he just said, you, you couldn't just go with a Bible and say, let me read the Bible to you. So my mom was a nurse who worked and opened her own little clinic and they used to get medications through from the UK. And so mom would do the social action bit, um, being a nurse, she was a midwife by profession, being a nurse among some poor Africans. And then my dad would plant a church. And that was that combination really that led to winning the hearts of lots of Ethiopians. This is what David Livingston did. He increased education, reading skills among the Africans, healthcare. And of course, as he was bringing healthcare and education, um, these Africans knew they were loved. This was a gospel of love. So they were so ready to listen to the gospel when they had seen the gospel in action by this man who devoted his life um, to travel across Africa in very dangerous circumstances um, to bring the faith. And I've just said here, Kerry and Livingston's passion and sacrifice led to interdenominational societies being formed. So in a sense, these missionary movements, we realized, you know, this is gospel centered. Christians from Baptist backgrounds, Presbyterian backgrounds, all these backgrounds can join together for this cause of taking the gospel to the world. So denominations worked together beautifully um, in sending the gospel across the world. Often denominations that weren't agreeing with each other back home. We're sending missionaries abroad who were preaching the same gospel of Jesus Christ in India, in China, in Africa, and across the world. And here is uh, the book, The History of the Baptist Missionary Society, one of the societies that was started at this time, um, Carey being the great inspirer of that. And uh, we will discover, actually, um, the fruit of these missionary labors, um, which is where we'll start with next week. Um, the fruit of these missionary labors is that um, the gospel has now really headed to the global south. So even though in Europe and, uh, and parts of America, the gospel is in great decline and people are leaving churches, um, today, um, the great vibrant churches, um, the growing churches who are sending missionaries back to us are in the very places where they were sent. Um, so African missionaries coming back to Britain to bring the gospel. Praise God that they are. South American boom time in South America. Brazil, the evangelicals in Brazil are numerous. Um, China, over a hundred million believers now in China. Um, I mean, the population of the UK is only 70 million. There's more Christians in China than there are people in the UK. Extraordinary. The government sometimes doesn't know what to do with it and the government's persecuting it. But here's the fruit of missionary service. And we pray that some of these missionaries will come back to us and evangelize the land that originally evangelized them.